Hello, I'm Tim Bladick with OFO's Training and Outreach Division, and I'm here today with Victor Voloshin, who is the Chief Mediation Officer for EEOC. So Victor, what are we going to talk about today? Thanks, Tim. Today I would like to talk about designing effective workplace ADR program. Okay, so just to clarify, that means you're, you want to talk about effective ADR programs for EEO complaints, right? Well, it will be about EEO complaints as well, but in reality, I will be talking about effective workplace ADR programs of any kind that include all kinds of complaints, not just EEO complaints. Huh, that's kind of interesting. We both work for EEOC and we talk about federal government issues, so why are we talking about anything other than EEO complaints? That's a very good point. Uh, and EEOC addressed it several times, and one time, uh, in 2003-2004 study that EEOC conducted on best practices on ADR, EEOC actually made a point about it and said that EEO offices sometimes serve as proxies for all kinds of other complaints that people bring in because they don't know where else to go. And therefore EEO offices don't have time to focus on serious EEO allegations or don't give them as much time. So EEOC, even 15 years ago, said that it would be good if agencies had some other processes where they can resolve all kinds of workplace issues, therefore reducing the workload of EEO offices that would deal only with serious EEO allegations. So EEOC really gave that their sanction, so to speak, that there should be other processes other than the EEO complaint process. Yeah, and the way EEOC tied it together is saying we want to make sure we give our best resources and best time and effort for EEO complaints that should be investigated and should be resolved specifically, whereas if it's not really related to EEO, it should be handled somewhere else and not burden EEO offices. So yes, and talking about uh, sanction, in this particular um, iteration of Management Directive 110, which is now by now four years old, EEOC introduced a concept that wasn't there before. It's called an independent ADR office. And I don't want to spend a lot of time discussing it. That may be a matter for another podcast or microlearning mm -hmm. um, discussion. But one of the things EEOC specifically said in describing an independent ADR office said the commission encourages the implementation of an independent ADR office as a best practice. A primary advantage of an independent ADR office is that the agencies can resolve disputes that do not belong in the EEO process, which then permits the EEO staff to focus on the traditional EEO complaint process. So that's kind of the reason why the Commission followed up on those recommendations from 2003-2004, um, kind of putting its stamp of approval, saying it's the best practice. It's not mandated, but it certainly is the best practice. So to be kind of explicit, we will talk about all kinds of workplace ADR okay. programs that include EEO, but also include many other right. processes. So one of the uh, things folks should consider in the design of the ADR program is the program should be flexible and the program should be fair. And I will take each of those um, in turn. And first, I would like to talk about 
the fairness of the ADR program. Okay, so Victor, how can there be any kind of guarantee that each employee would have a fair process or, you know, that they would have a fair compensation for, for what their concerns were? Interesting. You used um, two different words. You said fair process and fair compensation. And I want to point out that when we talk about fairness of ADR process, we're focusing on procedural side of it. We're not focusing on the outcomes. Um, if the process is designed correctly, fairly, then the outcomes will be accepted by all sides, whether or not it's the ideal outcomes or outcomes they really wanted. So we're focusing on process, and part of that process is flexibility, uh, the ability of the employees to choose among rights-based approaches and interest-based approaches. So let me uh, kind of expand on that. Rights-based approaches are the ones that are required by law. Your complaint process is required by law. Mm -hmm. It's a rights-based approach because employees have certain rights in the workplace. And EEO complaint process is designed to enforce EEO laws. If an uh, employee is a member of collective bargaining unit, um, and they have CBA, of course, collective bargaining agreement, but they also have other rights granted by both collective bargaining agreement and maybe by Federal Labor Relations Act that handles the interactions between bargaining unit employees and management. Again, it's a rights-based approach. Employees can file grievances. They can file complaints with the Federal Labor Relations Authority. That's a rights-based process, again. And ultimately, any employee can bring, after exhausting administrative remedies, can bring a complaint in the federal district court. It's another rights-based approach because um, every employee by law is given a right to bring a complaint or bring a lawsuit. Um, Interest-based approaches are the ones that I'm focusing on today, which is in alternative dispute resolution community, we call all of the processes that address interests of the parties. Meaning, uh, employee may be saying, I've been discriminated, and their interest is really to make sure they get a fair promotion uh, when the time comes. So we would be focusing not on vindicating their rights because they were discriminated, but focusing on how employee can accomplish the promotion that they have interest in getting. So it may fall outside your typical EEO complaint or the rights that they're given. Sort of fills the gap. Absolutely. Because EEO process, by its nature, is remedial, kind of retroactive, and very, um, uh, very much based on what the law provides. Like, employee, if discrimination is found, could get promoted, could get a back pay. But employee, for example, may not negotiate a detail, because the detail um, is not part of normal uh, course of events even if the discrimination was found. Whereas in the interest-based approach, the focus will be what you really want to accomplish. If you want to improve your career, if you want to improve your resume, you may want details somewhere else, or you may want a different assignment. <coughs> so something that a normal EEO process, even if the discrimination was found, wouldn't be able to grant in the interest-based approach, employee may be able to get. So you could really get to the core of what the issue may be between the parties. Right. And what we discover many times 
especially if it's an ongoing relationship between an employee and a supervisor or manager, that <clears throat> however it's framed, whether it's a grievance violation of some sort, CBA violation, employee files grievance, or employee brings an EEO complaint, ultimately it may be about the relationship among mm -hmm. them. And again, no judge, no um, appellate attorney will ever get into the relationship aspect of them, whereas in interest-based process, not only they could get into it, that's kind of encouraged and explored and emphasis on getting into the underlying deeper issues, not just what the law may provide. Okay. So, <clears throat> with that, uh, again, part of any fair process, employees should have the ability to choose among any kind of right, rights-based approaches or interest-based approaches, and they should be able to vindicate their rights if the interest-based process is not successful. So it should never happen, and EEOC would not permit it, of course, for EEO ADR, that employee gives up their right to file or proceed with an EEO complaint for engaging in ADR process. And it shouldn't be outside of EEO complaints either. Employees should be able always to fall back if the interest-based process ADR is not successful to be able to go back to some kind of rights-based approach. And there are several elements to any fair process. It has to be voluntary. It has to be neutral. It has to respect self-determination of the parties. It has to be enforceable. And it has to be confidential. And I can talk about each of those elements in turn. Voluntary process means that parties engage in this process voluntarily. Again, it's very different from formal processes, like mm -hmm. EEO complaint process, a grievance process, where management doesn't have a choice. If employee files a complaint, management must respond to it and must deal with it. Uh, in a voluntary process, both sides determine whether they want to engage in it or not. And I can immediately hear lots of people raising one big question. Well, in my agency, it's mandatory for management to participate. How is it that you telling me it's a voluntary process for both sides, but it's mandatory for my management to participate? And I would like to take a small detour, even though it's not part of this discussion, but it helps to explain it. In Management Directive 110, which governs federal EEO process, EEO process for federal employees, uh, Chapter 1 actually defines parties, and Chapter 1 defines parties as employee who is complaining and the agency against which employee is complaining. Those are the parties. And EEOC very specifically says that accused official is not a party. Accused official is a witness, accused official is a participant, but they're not a party. The parties are only employee and the agency. And like I, we discussed it early on, Tim, that um, our discussion is wider than just EEO process. I wanted to use this as a springboard and say that EEOC actually done a really good job with the Management Directive 110, and I want to use it as a blueprint for all kinds of workplace disputes and processes that may not be in the EEOC's jurisdiction, just mm -hmm. to use it as a benchmark. So from 
with that in mind, even though I keep referencing MD-110, what I really am talking about is a concept that the organization, the agency, is the party. And if the head of that organization decided to make mediation available for any employee who asks for it, then lower-level managers will have to follow what that head of the agency decided. So for the head of the agency, it was a voluntary decision. For individual managers who may be, quote-unquote, required to participate, of course it doesn't feel particularly voluntary, and that's okay. Because and that may be the start of another workplace dispute. <laughs> it could be, and, and, and I have a second response, response to that. Now that managers are complaining, wait a second, you keep telling voluntary and I'm ordered by my head of the agency. Yeah, nice and good that it's legal, because the head of the agency represents the agency and chose on behalf of the agency, I still don't feel voluntary. And I say, that's fair. If an employee who works for you has a concern and wants to talk about it, what's the harm? Why not to? You as a manager should always be proactive in trying to listen to your employees anyway. So whether or not the head of your particular agency requires you to participate, you should want to anyway because you want to talk to your employees. You want to understand, again, like we spoke in the beginning, like go deeper, not just what they're claiming. They may claim discrimination or they want a promotion, but what are the deeper issues and try to resolve them precisely because deeper resolution will help them avoid future complaints, right? So I, I encourage managers to participate whether or not they feel it's not voluntary for them, but it's a good idea. So that's part, one part of the process, that it should always be voluntary. Also, it should be neutral, meaning this, any process where parties engage in voluntarily should not be skewed towards a particular party. Um, and that's why usually you hear mediators or any ADR professionals talk about being neutral, which means they don't represent the agency, they don't represent an employee, they're not an advocate for any particular side, they just represent a process. And uh, parties themselves, either represented or not, decide what they want to do. Uh, it's not my job as a neutral to help the party to uh, make a decision. I can explore things with the party. I can uh, help them understand pluses and minuses and benefits and detriments. Ultimately, it will be their decision, and I will not be advocating for a particular decision. So the process must be neutral. It also must respect party self-determination, meaning if the party wants to um, different outcome, or they want to terminate the process, or they want to bring somebody else to help them, that's their choice. And even if I personally, as a human being, may disagree with what they want to do, that's their processes. That's what they decided to do. They will live with the consequences of it. They're adults. They know what they're doing. And if that's what they decided, even if I personally think it's a wrong decision, it's not up to me. Although, although mediators do set rules during mediation that have to be followed, correct? Right. And thank you for bringing this up. The rules that mediators set uh, usually don't have anything to do with the substance of the discussion. It's just furthering that fairness of the process, right? If one side speaks, the other one shouldn't be interrupting because we want each side to be able to express themselves. 
It's about process, right? We don't really care what it is that the party says. We just don't want interruptions. So each side has full opportunity to express themselves. Or if mediators say, uh, I would like to talk to one of the sides privately in caucus, that's their decision. That's the rule they said that they would like to discuss something privately because they may want to explore some embarrassing issues or difficult issues, uncomfortable issues. But again, it's not about the substance. So thank you for pointing this out because the rules that mediators set is all about furthering this process to be fair, to be voluntary, to be neutral, to allow for self-determination of the parties. Is there ever any agreement that a mediator couldn't allow to, to occur? Well, this is kind of internal workings for each ADR program separately, but my particular rule and what I ask of my mediators and when I train mediators, I say to them, if you know something is outright wrong and either will not be accepted later on during the legal sufficiency review, for example, or uh, the mediator knows that there will be trouble with a particular term, I encourage mediators to explore it, to say, uh, from my experience, I, I have concerns about this. These are the concerns. Let's discuss. Uh, ultimately, again, it's up to the parties what they agree to and what the program design is like. So I, I encourage mediators to bring it up. If the parties want to resolve something and mediator knows it's outright illegal, mediator can advise the parties it's illegal and I will not be part of these proceedings, the most mediator could do is quit the process, stop the process and say, I'm no longer engaging in it, I'm terminating this process, find somebody else. I mean, that's kind of a very drastic measure. Mm -hmm. uh, most parties will kind of listen to the mediator if the mediator thinks, believes that what about to transpire something illegal. But short of that, yeah, mediator may express their opinion okay. and with permission to find the boundaries here so people understand. Right, and, and I appreciate it. And it also depends on the programs. Some programs, um, and th that talks about different styles of mediation, which is a uh, flexibility portion of the discussion, but since you brought it up, we can discuss it now. Um, the most traditional style of mediation that people used to and get trained in is facilitative style, where mediator controls the process, parties control the outcome, and mediator just basically sets the rules, guides the parties through the process, the process is fair, and whatever the outcome is, outcome is. That's facilitative style. But some agencies and some other organizations prefer actually a more kind of involved approach from the mediator. And if that agency chooses a different style, that's fine too. It's legitimate. Mediator may push parties more. Mediator, if they're very experienced in a particular area, could even evaluate things for the parties. We call it evaluative approach. It's kind of like very engaged. It's almost like a mini judge, right? Mediator may say, I've seen lots of these cases on this set of facts. I think this is what you could get. I think this is what the agency is likely to approve. Talk amongst yourselves, right? And kind of that sets the tone for the whole discussion. I believe it's maybe a little bit heavy-handed, but if the agency permits it and the parties want that type of approach, and usually it would happen um, when both sides are represented by attorneys and attorneys want to talk nuts and bolts and they want to jump right into numbers and money and specifics, um, that type of mediation style could actually be uh, fairly legitimate. And 
mediator may want to be somewhere in between what we call directive, not evaluative, but directive, telling parties this is a wrong term, it will never get approved because it doesn't comply with certain rules and regulation. That's directive, but parties then decide what they want to do. Um, and since we're talking about styles, there is yet opposite of all of this. It's called transformative mediation, which is where mediators basically allow parties to transform their relationships into something workable. And it's very hands-off approach. Parties decide on all of the rules themselves. Mediator don't set any rules for anything, even for the process. And parties kind of set their own rules if they want to, or no rules if they don't want to. And mediator just kind of helps them a little bit along, but very light touch. So there are extremes, evaluative on one side, facilitative. Uh, transformative on another side, and facilitative in the middle, directive, maybe leaning towards evaluative. Uh, all kinds of styles, each individual agency decide what they're comfortable with and what they would like to do. Uh, the most prominent example of transformative mediation, it's not used anywhere else in the federal government, but Postal Service loves it, adopted it 30 years ago, and that's the type of style they require. Most federal agencies use facilitative style, sometimes may be more directive than that. But if you go to federal courts, for example, the most common style there is evaluative because all the mediators are former judges. They know mm -hmm. the cases. They basically say to you, I know I ruled on thousands of those cases. This is what my ruling would be. Now as a mediator, I'm just telling you that's what my colleagues will do. Now discuss what you want to do with it, right? So it's so, so the culture of an agency can really make a big difference in well, how they end up with their ADR program. Absolutely. And all I recommend for folks who are listening are just be mindful of your agency culture, be mindful of what your agency wants to accomplish, and kind of design and discuss with the agency decision makers what they want the program to look like. And that will inform what kind of style you pick. And part of it would be... Uh, respectful of party self-determination, but within those parameters, could be transformative, could be evaluative, could be facilitative. Um, so enforceability, that's another element of any fair process, that if parties enter into an agreement, this agreement will be lived up to. And EUC, of course, in Management Directive 110, which is only applicable to EEO complaints, EUC, of course, says any agreement entered by these parties will be accepted, will be enforced, and will be followed. Uh, and the same rules should apply, of course, for non-EO complaints. If somebody signs something, they, they have to live up to it. And the last piece is any fair process, besides being voluntary neutral with self-determination and enforceable, it also has to be confidential. So we talked a little bit about confidentiality, but we also have so people know, have a, a micro-learning and another podcast dealing specifically with confidentiality in the ADR process that you may want to um, take note of as well. Right. And I will just summarize very briefly here that the idea of confidentiality for these purposes is that anything that's said in ADR process, like mediation, would not be used in any other process. And that's, of course, understandable why. Because if we want people to engage in frank discussion and discuss their deepest concerns and dig deep and figure out what their interests are, they need to be comfortable that it will not come back to bite them in some other process. 
even if this process of ADR did not lead to resolution. When it, there is a resolution and everybody is okay with it, then it's less of a concern. The bigger concern, what happens, we started the ADR process, we spoke frankly to each other, sincerely, and then the process didn't resolve itself. And parties engaged then in the formal process, and that's what we need confidentiality protections for, that they still engage in the process, whether or not it ended up being successful, that uh, they still participate in good faith and fully engaged. Are there some things that that uh, participants may think are confidential that aren't from the process? Well, uh, the one major big exception, and it's kind of like almost known to anybody who ever watches TV, uh, self-harm or harm to others, which is imminent, uh, would not be ever confidential. So if mediator gets an inkling, and it's a credible recognition that one of the parties is about to harm themselves or others, or engage in the destruction of property, uh, all bets are off. No confidentiality. They will disclose. They probably will call Federal Protective Services. Mm. They probably will stop mediation because safety and security is important. Short of that, there is practically no other reason besides the imminent harm when confidentiality uh, would be broken. Um, but, for example, settlement agreement, if it in and of itself uh, not confidential if parties resolved something at the end of the process. It wouldn't be confidential. Again, the good idea, and EEOC specifically says in MD-110, parties who implement settlement agreements should not be disclosing information from the settlement agreement willy-nilly on a need-to-know basis, only to need to process, and forbids disclosure to outside. Uh, but that, you know, and that practice should be used for all kind of complaints, not just EEO complaints. But please know that the Administrative Dispute Resolution Act does not protect settlement agreements, for example. And there may be few exceptions. Um, I don't know if we have time to engage in one of the bigger controversies, but some agencies say allegations of waste, fraud, and abuse will not be confidential. Mm -hmm. And I strongly disagree with that position. I think the agencies are absolutely wrong about this because this is not required in the Act that uh, the agencies engage in this. And um, it's, I think, allegation is just that. It's an allegation. Unless there is a danger to somebody's life or property, and it's an imminent danger, allegations, like people allege all kinds of things. They allege discrimination. They allege violations of CBA. May or may not be true. We cannot know without full investigation. Why would we be stopping a process and saying, oh, this is somehow exempted because somebody used magic trifecta, waste, cost, and abuse? Uh, so I strongly disagree with those agencies. I say it's a knee-jerk reaction. It's not supported in the law, and they should rethink that type of exception if they currently have it. Uh, did that answer your question? Yes, I think okay. so. Okay. So, we talked about fairness of any process, how to design a fair process. Another element, which I said, was flexibility, right? And flexibility of a process means it has to be flexible enough to accommodate any kind of needs of parties. Because if you remember, it's an interest-based approach. Different parties have different interests, and the processes that we offer them should be flexible enough to accommodate those interests. Uh, so what it means 
it could be different techniques. In fact, the EEOC encourages agencies to use various techniques in combination of, by themselves. Um, Management Directive 110, of course, for EEO ADR, requires that one of those techniques be such that allows meaningful participation of all parties involved. Uh, and I see Tim's puzzled look. Like I always it, have that look on my face. <laughs> and uh, he's probably thinking, isn't every ADR process allows for engagement of two parties or all of the parties? Like, why we have to say that? Well, it's because the ADR community kind of changed in the last 20, 30 years, and now there are actually processes that involve only one party. Mm -hmm. And doesn't have to involve both parties. For example, coaching. Because we think of coaching as like lifestyle coaching, or we may be thinking of coaching as leadership coaching, right? But there are actually lots of different type of coaching. One of them is conflict coaching. We could coach an individual person like who is in, has conflict with somebody, what will their response to conflict be? What their response will be if other side does not want to talk, right? So there are processes now, and coaching is only one example, but very kind of powerful and used frequently. Um, it does not allow for meaningful participation of all the sides. So what EEOC says, you can do whatever processes you want agency with whatever combination of processes, uh, but please make sure that at least one of them is such that allows all of the parties' participation. Mm. So the example we use in Management Directive 110, and again, I keep referencing it, but please understand, it's valid uh, ideas and thoughts for non-EO complaints as well. Uh, we may use co coaching pre-mediation, during mediation, maybe after mediation. We couldn't use coaching by itself because it doesn't allow all of the parties' participation, mm -hmm. but we can use it in combination with a process that does allow all of the parties' participation, like mediation. So uh, agencies should be prepared to offer various approaches, various techniques, various combinations of them, uh, because that's what best practices are, and we are talking about best practices. Another one is what kind of neutral, and that's a term of art, neutral is a person who engages in the alternative dispute resolution, helping parties to accomplish whatever they're trying to accomplish. So that raises a question for me about small agencies. We, uh, small agencies often have different interests than the larger agencies. So how, how do they deal with the whole idea of, of neutrals? Because some, they're so small, everybody knows everybody, or mm. you know, that's very difficult to find somebody, a neutral party. Isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's a good point, and we hear from either smaller agencies or like small installations, like if it's a base, um, and they have only 20 people in the office, and they're jets of all trade, right? They're supposed to do everything in that office. Um, so uh, uh, there are actually various ways for the agencies to find neutrals. Um, they may go to their parent agency if it's a sub-agency of a larger agency. Like, for example, Treasury Department has a roster of neutrals that they lend to all of the agencies within Treasury Department. So your particular agency may be, they wouldn't send you somebody from your own agency, but they will send you somebody from larger Treasury. Or DOD, Defense Department. Or um, HHS. Like, larger agencies already have their own rosters that they lend to their sub-agencies, as long as it's not 
people from the same sub-agency. Uh, also, agencies could go and hire private contractors. And I know your immediate question will be, well, the smaller agencies, they may not have money, right, to hire contractors. And this is the beauty of the Administrative Dispute Resolution Act, that uh, for the most part, as a general proposition, federal government cannot accept gifts from private citizens. And that involves well, not just gifts of money or in kinds of goods in kind, but also services. Federal government cannot accept volunteers. There has to be a special statutory provision for a particular agency to accept voluntary service from private citizens. And Administrative Dispute Resolution Act, which governs, among other things, confidentiality for federal executive branch, uh, it also provides that neutrals could be sourced pro bono, that federal government could accept free services from citizens if they want to contribute them as volunteer mediators, uh, which is a wonderful provision because it allows you to go and recruit, and there are a lot of folks who are willing to help federal government either because they will hone their own skills or because they altruistic and they want to help federal government or because they want to get into a particular area and they want to bolster their resume. Their reason's not really important. The important thing is we can accept their free services, which is kind of unusual otherwise in the federal government. Do, you, do we see that very often? Oh, yeah. In fact, um, ESC itself has a very robust program, uh, which is our private sector mediation program, uh, which deals with the private individuals bringing charges against private companies, right? That's EEOC's most famous mission. And of course, we have a mediation program for those complaints, and a lot of those programs are sourced by pro bono mediators. Mm -hmm. And of course, every agency has a list of pro bono mediators who are willing to contribute their services. And if you don't currently, listeners out there, please make sure you could find them and you can bring them on board. Administrative Dispute Resolution Act of 1996 allows you to do that. So the agencies should be very flexible as to what type of neutrals they have, what kind of styles those neutrals have. We discussed earlier, evaluative, facilitative, transformative, directive style, depending on your needs of the program. Also, the agencies should be flexible as to what kind of representation they allow in mediations and other ADR processes. If you ask me, irrespective of what the law says, each party should be able to bring anybody they want to with them in mediation. Because the idea is to resolve issues, right? Whatever helps them to resolve issues, they should be able to rely on another person's support. It could be union representative, even if it's not a union issue. If you ask me, that should be okay. It could be a private attorney. If they can afford one, that's great. It could be a family member. It could be a co-worker. Um, what about the complaint that attorneys turn, in, turn ADR into litigation? Uh, that's a very valid complaint. And uh, when I train mediators, I tell them that the most important thing to do is, if parties are represented by the attorneys, to greet the attorneys and tell them that attorneys could play one of two roles. One is the zealous advocate for their client, and that's where the, any kind of interactions between two attorneys usually becomes a mini-trial short of fisticuffs, right? Um, but attorneys also play another role. They can be problem solvers. And I encourage all of the attorneys at the beginning of the mediation to put on the advisory hats, to put the, the hats of, 
uh, problem solvers and um, try to kind of channel them their energies into instead of rehearsing opening statement in front of me try to figure out what your client really wants and try to help your client get there um, so that's more for the mediators to how to handle kind of more difficult attorneys out there um, but yeah anybody any representative could be disruptive we just need to be able to kind of channel their energies into more productive uses um, the agency should consider as part of their flexibility a different format not every discussion should be face-to-face -face, right some discussions maybe parties are so acrimonious that putting them face-to-face -face will not be productive maybe we engage in shuttle diplomacy where we talk to different parties separately and that's more constructive uh, agencies should not use one blanket approach to everything and instead should cater a particular approach to a particular circumstances of the case um, of course, uh, there are formal processes undergird a lot of interactions, and if the ADR interactions are not successful, a formal process may kick in. So the agencies, when they design programs, they should think about that, and they should think in terms of how they will memorialize outcomes. EEOC, of course, is very clear for EEO type of ADR. If there is any resolution, it must be in writing. That's EEOC's requirement for this type of resolution. But not every resolution will be reduced to writing because sometimes resolution may be, okay, we understand each other better, thank you for clarifying something. Or now we agreed how we will proceed working with each other, but there is nothing to really put in writing. Um, or it could be a withdrawal of a formal complaint. So resolution doesn't always lead to writing, in writing, like settlement. But unfortunately, the opposite is also true. Not every settlement means that there is a resolution, right? Mm -hmm. All the settlement means is that the agency agreed to pay you something and you agreed to withdraw your complaint. It doesn't always mean it resolves the underlying issues, right? If it's done superficially, if it's done on courthouse steps because the judge ordered you to do it and not because parties wanted to. So don't fool yourself thinking that if you have a settlement, you have also a resolution. So you may have one without the other. Um, and the agency should be prepared to handle it and have different types of outcome permitted. Again, reminder, for EEOC purposes, if it's EEO complaint resolved, EEOC does want to see it in writing for settlement. Um, so, in the remaining few minutes, I just wanted to spend time to kind of discuss broadly ideal design of an ADR program. So. Uh, the first and paramount, and I know there will be a lot of arguments from listeners out there. Again, remember, we're talking about best practice, ideal scenario. It may or may not work for a particular agency. But the idea is that the ADR program reports directly to the head of the agency. So that, that's surprising to hear you say that. So aren't there confidentiality considerations there that you wouldn't want that as a, a reporting? Uh, avenue there? That's an awesome question, Tim. Um, in fact, I get this question very often. Um, there are two ways of thinking about reporting. One is the way you thought about reporting as in um, every evening I sit down and I brief the chair, like these are the cases I received and this is what I did in those cases. That's, and you're very correct raising confidentiality issues, and that's not the type of reporting that should occur. So, that, to clear everybody's out there and listening, 
Um, we don't want an ADR program to do that type of reporting, violating confidentiality of the parties, disclosing minutia of every conversation. What we're talking about is organizational reporting, right? Everybody has to report to somebody in the organization. And the ideal setup, best practice, not always feasible, is for the program to report organizationally to the head of the organization. And of course, the reason for this is if you remember elements of the good design of the program, it should be neutral. And for the program to be neutral, it shouldn't be subjected to anybody's oversight except the head of the agency. Um, in contrast, um, some dispute resolution programs reside in HR departments out there, or in EEO departments, or in legal offices. And there are reasons for those, but if you ask me, this is not the best design. Because as you would imagine, most times employees complain about something involves something HR did or didn't do, right? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you think that employee coming to resolve the complaint knocks on HR door and says, I have a complaint, and it happens to be complained against something HR did. And HR says, come on in, we have a dispute resolution program right here. Do you think employee will be very comfortable engaging with that type of program, thinking that you're the ones who caused all these problems, and now you're saying, come on in, can I help you to resolve it? <clears throat> At a minimum, there will be a perception of the program not being neutral, right? Um, with EEO offices, that's actually a historic thing. We all know how it happened. EEOC, a long time ago, required that every agency made available ADR for EEO complaints. So every agency complied, and they made ADR part of the EEO office. Right? Normal, natural, still a lot of agencies have it. What's the issue with that? What's the problem with agencies having ADR in, located in the EEO office? You want me to answer that? If you can, if well, you want to. there's a conflict of interest there. Possibly, though it's less of a conflict of interest because the EEO office is supposed to be neutral, right? So it's mm -hmm. kind of like one neutral office, another neutral office. HR represents the agency. Right? So there, the conflict is more pronounced. Here, conflict is usually not so much of an issue. It's that the reason the EEOC encourages creation of independent ADR office. A lot of complaints are not EEO complaints. If you have an ADR office in the EEO office, um, they only cover EEO complaints. They miss out a lot of other complaints that have nothing to do with the EEO. So that's just to broaden kind of the audience. And legal offices, it's very common because originally ADR was promulgated in courthouses where attorneys were settling on courthouse steps. So a lot of legal offices kind of started doing um, ADR offices inside. But the problem with that is either perceived or actual conflict of interest because legal offices defend the agency. So how could they remain neutral again, right? So that's why my recommendation for the ADR office to report directly to the head of the agency. Um, that's not to say that ADR office should be isolated from all of these other offices. Of course, remember program flexibility and fairness. ADR office should be able to interact with every other formal process available within the agency, like EEO process, grievance process, um, other workplace complaints like harassment, anti-harassment coordinator, disabilities program manager for reasonable accommodation, and some other informal processes, like maybe 
employee assistant programs, uh, organizational development programs, training programs, because all of those areas, one way or the other, touch employees' interactions in the workplace and help employees to resolve their issues. So ADR office should clearly be working with those to kind of be most synergistic. Um, of course, it's important to have firewalls from all of those other offices and um, making sure that all information doesn't leave the office without the consent of the parties. Um, so I think um, I was kind of gave you a general overview. And if you would like more information, you can always find me on EEOC's website and contact me directly. Um, thank you, Tim. Thank you. That was that was great. I appreciated the uh, the give and take there, and uh, thank you so much. So, uh, hope to have you back again. Thanks. My pleasure.